made for autistic people, parents and carers of kids on the autism spectrum. This is a different brilliant with Orion Kelly. No two autistic people are the same. Open conversations that inform and engage what's a better place for autistic An aspect people. podcast focusing on the strengths, interests and aspirations of the autistic community. Welcome to a different brilliant. Welcome to A Different Brilliant. I'm your host, Orion Kelly, and I'm autistic. Now, my purpose is to inspire, inform, and entertain you through focusing on the strengths, interests, and aspirations of the autistic community. Open, open, honest, and engaging conversations on autism. A Different Brilliant with Orion Kelly. To learn more, catch up on the episodes, or send us a message, like the Aspect page on Facebook, or visit autismspectrum.org.au. Now, on this episode, we are exploring the topic of communicating with non-verbal autistic people. My guest is Hibba Nagril. Hibba is a speech pathologist and the practice leader for speech pathology and aspect therapy. Hibba, thank you for joining me. No, thank you for having me on. I'm looking forward to this conversation and I hope that a lot of people that are about to hear the conversation will find it not only fascinating but a great insight because I think we're in many ways about to discuss the unknown for many people. So let's start at the start. I want to be really simplistic to start off with. For the benefit of everyone listening, and you can include me as someone who's relatively new to this particular topic of nonverbal, could you explain what it actually means to be a child on the autism spectrum who is nonverbal and how that may differ from one child to the next? Sure. So someone who is on the spectrum and may be non-verbal. When we say non-verbal, we may not necessarily mean someone who has no words at all. Sometimes we'll have individuals who may have some words. Sometimes we'll refer, the research is starting to talk a lot about people being minimally verbal. So they may not have a lot of verbal language. They may not use a lot of words, but they may be using other verbal attempts. People who are non-verbal may actually use vocalizations. So they may be using sounds or they may be using sounds that sound a lot like words. So they may be attempting words. They may use other ways of communicating such as, and we'll talk about these a bit more later, but they may be using things like augmentative devices to be able to communicate. So they may use something else that almost speaks on their behalf. They may use things like signs and they may be using things like their body language or things like gestures or behaviours to be able to communicate their message. So when we're talking about someone being non-verbal, it may may not necessarily be that they have no words, but may just have a very limited number of verbal language that they're using. And it's really interesting because clearly I'm autistic. I have a seven-year-old autistic son. We're both uh, verbal, but it's really interesting to hear you talk because a lot of those ways of communicating, it could be body language, it could be sounds, not grunts, but different types of sounds. I find that both of us at certain times of the day, maybe when we're more overstimulated, we can communicate in noises rather than words. So it's interesting. I guess I can relate to some of those ways of communicating too as an autistic person. And it's just interesting how it manifests differently in different people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you actually think about 
the whole world and all people, you know, we all have our different ways of communicating at different times. You know, there's times where you might think I'm tired or I'm frustrated. I, I don't want to use language to communicate. So absolutely. I think every single person listening to this can relate to it in, in some way. Okay. So like me, I was born autistic, but I'm verbal. So do I have to be born autistic and have other comorbidities or other co-occurring disabilities as a rule to, to be nonverbal or is it just a everyone's individual? I think in this case, it's definitely everyone's individual. Often we'll see with people who may be minimally verbal or nonverbal, they may have a, a comorbid diagnosis such as intellectual disability, but that isn't always the case. And I think as our understanding grows, we hear a lot more of stories of people when they were younger. They may go on to develop a lot of verbal language, but often they've reflected on when they they were quite young. They may have been nonverbal for a longer period than what we would expect in yeah. the typical population, I guess, but um, in terms of how language develops. But yeah, not not always. There's, yeah. there's not always a comorbid diagnosis. And it, it just occurs to me, there's a few online advocates who are autistic who talk about when they were children, they were nonverbal. And now, of course, they're like YouTube, TikTok stars and all that kind of stuff. So it, it is really interesting how the journey pans out. Now, I want to break down some methods. Another great way, I mean, we're all about educating and, and helping people understand. So let's go through some of the, the methods of nonverbal communication that people on the autism spectrum use. Because I think a lot of people just jump to some pretty general conclusions, but I'd love to get your rundown different ways. Yeah, absolutely. So I've kind of got a few that I'm going to go through, but I'll say right from the start that there are things that extend beyond this, but I want to kind of give a nice snapshot of things that you know, people will generally see in the community. So we'll often see people who may be nonverbal using, as I mentioned before, they may use behaviour. So they may have certain behaviours that they use at certain times to communicate a message. So, for example, they may display a behaviour that demonstrates that they're protesting or, you know, that they don't want something, for example. It may even include things like gestures like pushing or pointing to things that they want. They may use behaviours like just removing themselves to be able to make, you know, that's a pretty clear message that I don't want to do something or I'm not interested in something. So they may use their whole body or parts of their bodies to communicate. Just like everybody, we may see things like body language being used as well. So even things like facial expressions and the way our bodies are positioned and how we hold ourselves can often send a message out about how maybe how we're feeling or something that we want to do even thinking of things like you might see someone turn their body towards something and you know that oh this person actually obviously wants this thing or they want to try and communicate with a person because they've turned their body in a certain way so that's what we call kind of using body language we may see people using things like vocalizations so whether it is things like grunts or it may be things like attempts of real words so to give an example so let's say if someone wanted water and they might just say what for water and people who know that individual may know because they're seeing that consistently that this person actually wants water that I know that when they say what that means water we may see things like keyword sign so keyword sign it's not sign language but it uses some of the signs and concepts from Auslan and and other sign languages keyword sign is Australian so we use signs from Auslan and that's as the name suggests it is just using sign language for the keywords so we don't use sign language 
in that moment for things like grammar and it would be like for example if it, again the word water we would sign for just water or sign for just drink that's a pretty big one we often see that in the community a lot and a lot of people educators and support workers are really familiar with some keywords through keyword sign we may also use and see people using devices so they may use speech generating devices things like lamp lamp is language acquisition through motor planning it's a type of device that we see people using where it's a specialized device and we press a button and it communicates a message for us so for example there's an icon on there that indicates water you press it and it will say water and there's no confusion with that one because it says the exact word of what the thing is that you want that obviously takes a lot of time to learn and a lot of teaching and whatnot and I'll talk through a little bit about our roles as speech pathologists in that but that's something that you may see people using and the other one is you may see individuals using communication aids so they can often look different in that they are not they often don't have technology involved whereas a device will have technology so things like pod which is on paper so it's it doesn't have any technology in it and that stands for pragmatic organization dynamic display which is it's, it's a pod book and it's got all the icons in a book format or pecs which are forms of visuals that are on little cards and you'll often see people using those to be able to communicate their message as well yeah and i think it's really great to hear that it actually is so wide ranging. You would hate to think that we've just started, all right, guys, here's one thing, take it or leave it kind of thing. It sounds like it's really fantastic that it's grown into such great resources. I can totally relate to the idea of asking for water using a device or asking for water using a book. I can totally relate to how both of those would be amazing for different reasons. So I think it's, I'm really happy to hear that it's become so wide ranging. Has it always been like that in your career or has it got much better recently? I think our knowledge has gotten much greater if I think about early on in my career. I mean, even to this day, I think we still do a lot of trial and error to work out what suits an individual. But early on, I think we didn't quite have the range that we do now. Obviously, technology has made a, a huge difference. You know, at the start of my career, we just didn't have things like that, which tells you my age. But, you know, iPads were not a thing then. Whereas now, I think that access that we have to technology has made a big difference in terms of opening up different forms of communication for individuals. Let's talk about how we can help parents and I guess just members of the community who might be listening to this to try and get more understanding. How can we help parents and I guess friends, family, people in the community to learn like you were talking about with the like what for war, learn the cues, be able to communicate and interact with children on the autism spectrum or even, even autistic people who are nonverbal? What things can we do? Yeah, so I think something that I've always kind of kept at the forefront of when I'm working with a person who's got a communication difference is assume competence. So assume that they do have a message to give us and assume that they are able to if we give them the time and the appropriate support. So I think that's the first thing that we always have to assume that this person has a message that they want to communicate to us. So we have to support them to be able to give that message. So ways that we can do that is through taking time to actually learn and understand the way that they communicate. Just like imagine if we moved somewhere new and we had to learn a new language and we were learning the new language we would want people to give us time we would want people to give us extra supports to be able to learn the language it's the same thing in reverse that we're kind of saying take the time to learn 
take the time to be able to sit down and, and particularly when you've got, say, for example, parents and other people in the community, other there may be other people who are supporting that person, like other family members, or they may be accessing something like a school. You know, many heads is better than one. So being able to kind of sit down and actually talk through what are we seeing so that we're, especially in different environments, we often see different types of communication behaviours because there's different needs in different environments. So actually sitting and discussing what kind of things are we seeing in the way that this person's trying to communicate and then actually taking the time to learn to understand it. And I think the other thing is actually taking the time to be able to allow that person to communicate. So that means actually giving them the time to communicate. So if we assume competence and we assume that this person's got a message, I'm going to give them time to be able to give me that message as opposed to I'm going to make up the response or I think I know what they want. Even when we do know what they want, actually giving them the time to be able to do something on their own to be able to communicate what they want. And the thing about that's really important to, to take note with that is regardless of your care needs, whether they're low care needs, high care needs, autistic people can struggle with processing things, even if they have low care needs or high care needs, regardless of their situation, the processing time interacts with communication already. So for example, me, I'm verbal, but I still may get to the point where my, my wife goes, are you listening to me? And I've got to say, I'm processing what you've asked me. I'll get back to you in a second. So already there's that reaction. But then when someone is non-verbal you you can write them off before you've even given them a chance to process it and respond in their way and it's like well hang on you need to meet them as well and and understand where they're coming from and understand the best ways of interacting and communicating with them I mean really that has to be the goal doesn't it we have to work together as parents and children as carers and children as teachers and children we have to all come together absolutely and I think that processing time is is a really big one when we think about how we interact with someone if I think about how I'm interacting with you now, you know, I say one thing and then I have to give you time to process that and then also give you time to actually formulate a response of what are you actually going to say in response. I think sometimes we can often miss that step of actually you will need some time to be able to process it and then we also need time to formulate that response. So, yeah, that processing time is a really big one and it's often something that we do a lot of work with schools and carers and educators and parents to help them understand that bit as well, that that's part of the communication interaction. I think just what you've said is really important because from my point of view, these podcasts, you don't you don't hear it because I edit them out, but usually when, when a guest stops talking, there's a bit of a bit of silence before I come back in. That's because I'm processing and catching up and working out where I am and that can come across for people talking to me is awkward and then they think I'm weird or awkward. Do you know what I mean? So it's, got, it's a vicious cycle. So it's really important to have that to have that insight and knowledge and acceptance. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think we often, as a society, often try and fill those empty spaces, but actually those empty spaces are really important for people oh, with communication absolutely. differences. Except for when you're in uni and the lecturer does the seven seconds of <laughs> silence. You know how the, the lecturer always asks a question and they, they have, se- the rule is, I, I asked and they told me the answer. They said, don't tell anyone. It's seven seconds. You, if you, you wait for seven seconds of silence and someone will always break and try to answer the question that's the that's a uni a little insight into going to uni don't do it (laughs) i'm kidding all right now uh, what roles does speech pathology speech therapists like yourself other therapies play in actually supporting and encouraging language development and how does it work and i know you've alluded to talking a bit about this so it'd be really interesting to unpack this yeah so in terms of what we do as speech pathologists is that our primary focus is around developing 
and supporting functional communication development. So it's not necessary. And when we say functional, the measure there is not about we have to use words or we have to be using sentences or we have to be using a device or we have to be using visuals. There's no rule about what it needs to look like, which is why we say it's about functional communication. It's communication that allows that person to function. It allows that person to be able to communicate their needs, to be able to understand what other people are doing or what other people are saying to them. And it also allows functional communication means that we are creating communication that can be used across with multiple people. So, you know, you can go into the community, for example, and that type of communication will work hopefully with people who don't know you as well versus people who obviously know an individual a lot and spend a lot of time with them. So our primary focus is really around supporting something functional, whether that's developing the use of something like device or developing the use of things like PECs. In terms of the other ways that we work with families is around also understanding those communicative attempts. So kind of like what I was saying earlier, that bit of, you know, it takes time and it takes understanding to understand things like when this person says what, that means water, and it doesn't mean something else. You know, there are other words that might sound similar. So often we'll work with families and parents and carers and things around understanding what are those attempts and being able to recognise those, especially when someone has lived with someone their whole life and they sometimes it can be hard to see all those communicative attempts and it helps to have kind of a third person looking in who, you know, who has that focus and that lens of communication. Often we'll spend time introducing some form of a or some form of an alternative communication method. So whether it is introducing things like visuals, introducing things like PECs, which are visual supports for communication, whether it is that we're introducing keyword signs. So often we're doing some work around kind of educating and training in those specific areas, even things like LAMP, you know, at Aspect, we have a number of staff who are very skilled in that and they'll spend a lot of time educating and training families on how to actually use that device. Because to be honest, some of those ones are, they're complex, you know, they're complex devices. They do a lot, they can communicate a lot and it takes time to kind of work out how does it work and as a a parent or carer to know how to actually make sure you're getting the most out of those complex devices. And the other thing that we'll often do a lot of work on is teaching individuals and families how to create those communication opportunities. If I think about some of the families I've worked with, sometimes I've come into the home and we've talked about even, and again, I'm a third person coming in and I've got a communication lens. So I'm kind of focusing on this one area and we'll spend time kind of problem solving and brainstorming what things can we see around the home and with this individual that we could do to create more communication opportunities. So for example, someone who we know that they may love water, we may create some opportunities of how can we get them to be able to communicate that rather than just giving them water or giving them access all the time. Let's let's create a way that they may actually be able to communicate that message because they like it and everybody feels good when they can do something for themselves, when they can communicate something that's really rewarding for an individual as well. It's not just about us kind of forcing someone to do something more. So often we'll do some work around that of just how to create more communication communication opportunities in the everyday. And from your experience, this just occurred to me from your private practice and with your work at Aspect, are you finding in comparison to the work you've done in your own practice to the work you're doing at Aspect, are you finding any differences with regards to where parents and carers sit compared to say people that are providing therapies or even teachers? Is there any kind of difference to where the starting point is and the work you've got to do? Or are we really kind of on the same 
on the same journey either way. Because I, I guess I'm talking not only from an aspect point of view, but from, you know, from a general point of view of teachers within the, our broader education system, you know, where we're starting from compared to, say, the parent who comes to see you with their child. In terms of within schools, and again, if I think about earlier on in my career, how teachers look now in terms of their knowledge, their access to information, their experiences with individuals who have different learning needs, who have different communication needs, is so different. You know, it, early on, sometimes you'd meet teachers who might say, look, I've, n- I've never had someone who's used a device in my room. Whereas now you'll have lots of teachers who will be really exposed, even if they haven't had a child in their own class, they'll, they'll know kids in their school who have communicated in a different way. They may have used a device or used visuals. I think one of the differences as a therapist is, is that often I'm coming into families' lives much earlier. I'm getting in before the, the child starts school. So that's a big difference, I think, in terms of my knowledge versus a teacher's in terms of, you know, I'm often meeting kids when they're maybe around two versus for a teacher, they're often meeting those kids for the first time once they're kind of five or six. So their skills and their communication abilities can often look really quite different from what it looked like before. You know, often I've sometimes talked to teachers about when I first met this child, this is kind of how they communicated and they're shocked because they think, oh, I I can't imagine this child being nonverbal or I can't imagine this child not using a device because that's how I'm seeing them now. So often that's kind of the difference between, say, teachers and a therapist is often that we've seen them at an earlier age. But I do think that that understanding in the education system around communication differences and different augmentative systems, things like PECs and keyword signs, it's really increased a lot, which makes a big difference to our kids. And I think broadening that out, what you've just said with regards to the difference, the generational change in in teaching, do you think that the children on the autism spectrum who are nonverbal, and I guess even autistic adults who are nonverbal, can they be written off due to their different communication methods? Because, and I can relate to that, just being autistic in general, you can be written off. But is it even more significant for people who are nonverbal? And and how do you think we can address this as a community? Yeah, I mean, I wish, honestly, I wish I could say that, no, that's not the case. But yeah, unfortunately, it, it often can be that. And kind of what I said before, you know, sometimes we don't give enough time for someone to be able to formulate a response, for example. So we assume that they just don't have anything to say or that they don't actually have a response. They haven't understood us. But in actual fact, they often need a lot more time to be able to process and be able to come up with a response. So I think that that's where my key message is around you know, we have to assume that there's community competence there, that this person has a message to give us. So it's our role as the people supporting that individual, whether it's as a friend, as a teacher, as a parent, it's our job to help support them to be able to communicate effectively. So whether it is that we go, okay, give them more time, give them the supports that they need. So if we know that they use a device to communicate, make sure they have access to it, make sure it's charged, make sure that it's easily accessible. It shouldn't live on a shelf somewhere. You know, my voice doesn't live on a shelf somewhere. So someone's device shouldn't live on a shelf somewhere. If they're using things like PECs, make sure that they've got access to their PECs folder. Make sure that they know exactly where it is in a classroom. You know, we keep those things in the same spot so this individual can find it easily. And we have to make sure, I think, that we're responding to people's communicative attempts. So if someone says to me, why? and I know that that means water, that at that point, I'm going to respond. I'm going to make sure that they get what they are asking for. That's not the point that I'm going to insist that they say water instead. So I think it's that interaction between kind of assume competence, but then also make sure that we're responding to all their attempts. Like I said earlier, it feels good to be able to get your message across. It feels good to feel 
that you're good at something. So when someone is trying to communicate to us, it's important that we're actually responding. And I think, yeah, like I said, it's the bit about giving people some time to communicate, making sure that we're actually responding and making sure that they have access to the things that they need to be able to communicate. So if they're at the shops, we still make sure that they've got their device. If they're at swimming, for example, we still make sure that they've got some communication supports at those different times. You know, Hibra, I think you're a star. And to be honest with you, I can actually, I can genuinely hear passion in your voice when you speak about it. So I can only assume it brings you a lot of joy to enable children who are nonverbal to really reach their quality of life and, and their full potential. It seems like it's something that lights you up and you're passionate about. Yeah, absolutely. As I said, I, got, I get to meet children very early in their lives and I get to have a unique relationship with them in terms of being able to teach and being able to learn a lot from them as well. So absolutely, it's a, it's a true passion. It's an honour to be able to do the work that I do. It was my pleasure to have this conversation with you, Hibber. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. My guest on this episode was the practice leader for speech pathology at Aspect Therapy, Hibba Nagriel. A Different Brilliant with Orion Kelly. And thank you so much for listening to A Different Brilliant. If the episode has resonated with you, well, please share it with your family and friends so we can reach more people. And if you'd like to continue the conversation, you should like the Aspect page on Facebook or you can visit my website and send me a message. Just go to orionkelly.com.au. A Different Brilliant is an Aspect podcast. Executive producers are Lisa Cassidy, Dr. Tom Tutton and Julie Fenwick. I'm Orion Kelly. Thanks for listening to A Different Brilliant with Orion Kelly an Aspect podcast on the strengths, interests and aspirations of the autistic community. Our door is open anytime. So like the Aspect page on Facebook or visit autismspectrum.org.au. My aim, make the world a better place for autistic people.